Good to be with you today. My name is Alan, and we're in a series where we're talking about church history. You see, we have the Bible and the Bible stories that many of us are familiar with on different levels, David and Goliath and Daniel in the lion's den and the prodigal son and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We have all these Bible stories, and then we have our own lives here, and we have lots that we're aware of here, the people we interact with, the people we mentor, and the people who are mentoring us, we're doing life with, et cetera, our family, et cetera. But we've got this 2,000-year gap between the Bible stories and where we are today, and it is so important for us to at least have some level of familiarity with those 2,000 years. We can't understand where we are today without having some sense of how we got here. Now today, here in week three, it's a five-week journey. As I've said the last couple weeks, nothing says party like a five-week journey through church history. And so here we are in week three, and we are looking at the 16th century. This is the part of the story that most of us are going to be familiar with. This is the part that we even talk about in our secular education journeys. We learn about the 16th century. This is the Protestant Reformation. Bum, bum, bum. Okay, so at this point, at the beginning of the, the uh, 1500s, in the early 1500s, the church had grown to be pretty significant, pretty vast, pretty powerful. As I talked about last week, it was the church that initiated the military crusades against the Muslims in Jerusalem and fought against them, killed Muslims for 200 years with that whole journey. That was the church and its power that did that. Later on, it was the church that sanctioned the horrific inquisitions that terrorized Europe in that, in that journey. The church had grown to be a vast, powerful, wealthy machine, which was so tragic because it had fallen so far from the revolution of love that Jesus started 1,500 years ago. The church was so far away from that. It was this big, huge machine. And then in the 16th century, we have these little people. Imagine many figures in Lego. We have these little figures, uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin and others, etc., who came up to this big, massive church and just said, wait a minute, something has to change. Something has to be reformed. That's what we're taking a look at today. Uh, this whole series is about we didn't start the fire. We didn't start this fire. Jesus started this fire. But during the dark ages, this fire, the passion that is the story of Christianity, it almost burned out in the dark ages. But here in the 16th century, through the, through the Protestant Re uh, Reformation, the fire was set ablaze. And that's what we're looking at here today. Would you bow your heads again with me? Father, I'm thankful to be uh, here with you, uh, together with these um, uh, folks here in this room and, and online, God, so thankful. Every, every one of us, we, we want to have a, a passion, a fire in our lives for something meaningful, for something important, and that fire is what you put in us. And so, God, as we look at how the, the flame just exploded in the 16th century, God, would you inspire us in terms of the fire that is in us right here, right now? We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as we've been walking uh, this journey, we've been looking at one verse each week from the church history rewrite 
of the Billy Joel song, We Didn't Start the Fire from 1986. So I get to torture you once again with verse 3. And it kind of jumps right in. It's kind of odd, but it is verse 3 of the song. Maybe on week 5 we'll put the whole thing together. But here's verse 3 of We Didn't Start the Fire. There's verse 3. There were probably more things in that verse that you were familiar with than in uh, previous verses. As with any major human event, major world event, there were many different factors that led to the Protestant Reformation, not the least of which was John Wycliffe who translated the Bible into regular languages. It had always been in Hebrew and Greek and Latin, but now Wycliffe had translated it into regular language, which was a big deal, so that it wasn't just the elite clergy who had access to Scripture, but it was regular folks being able to read Scripture like we get to now. And then the second major deal that led to the the Reformation was the invention of the printing press, It was an incredibly effective way to copy and distribute information to vast numbers of people in a fast way. But the iconic start of the Protestant Reformation, the thing that we kind of think of for the most part in terms of the moment when the Protestant Reformation started was when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, This was the kind of the iconic moment. Martin Luther was a big deal. It wasn't a big deal at the time, but he, as we look back, his life and what he did to the world, to the church, was a big deal. There are more books written about Martin Luther than any other human being, any other person. Other than Jesus, there are more books written about Martin Luther, trying to figure out how this all happened and who this guy was. He was a professor of theology, which meant that he understood the story, he understood the Bible, he understood the church, he understood theology on a significant level. And the story goes that he was uh, teaching and dealing with his students, and he loved teaching and he loved his students. But there was a, a young female student of his, that he, and he wanted to challenge her morality in some sense, challenge something that she was doing. I don't know exactly what it was, but he wanted to speak into her life in some way. And she just looked up at him and said, it doesn't matter, Professor Luther. It it doesn't matter. I'm okay. Everything's taken care of because, look, I have a signed letter from the church saying that my sins are forgiven. 
You see, what was happening is that the church was taking money from poor people in exchange for a letter of indulgence that said, your sins are forgiven. And Professor Luther lost it. I mean, he just, he just said, this is absolutely ridiculous. This was too much for him. He was aware of what was going on, and he decided to start writing down things that the church needed to talk about and revisit. Things like the fact that the Pope should not be forgiving sins. The Pope doesn't forgive sins. Jesus was challenged in the New Testament for forgiving the sins of other people and because only God can do that. So why are we now saying that the Pope can do that? The Pope cannot forgive sins. Uh, Luther was challenging this. He was challenging the church's understanding of purgatory. He was challenging the idea that people could pay money to the church to get their loved ones out of purgatory. He was challenging this idea that we could pay, that anybody could pay money to take care of our sins. Luther was just writing these things out one at a time, 95 things. He wrote these things out and copied them on the printing press, distributed them throughout Germany, distributed them throughout Europe, nailed it onto the church door in Wittenberg. It's so important to understand and remember that Luther was not trying to destroy the church. He loved the church. He was a leader in the church. He loved God. He loved Jesus. He, 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 he absolutely wanted the church to thrive. He wasn't even trying to reform the church. He just wanted to initiate conversation. He wanted to challenge the church, and he was bold enough to do that. Unfortunately, the church wasn't up for it. And church leadership said, we're not up for these questions. We're not going to engage with this. And if you've ever seen the movie Luther, great movie, great version of the story of Luther. But Luther ended up having this hearing where he was forced to recant his 95 theses, his questions, his views, his concerns. He was forced to remove all of that stuff. But he would not. He said he, said he was bold enough, courageous enough in front of all the leadership to say, I cannot take it back. And so he was excommunicated, kicked out of the church. But Luther had followers, lots of followers because this stuff had distributed around. And people were saying, yes, we need to talk about this stuff. We need to rethink this stuff. And so a large group of people were protesting what happened to Luther, protesting the church's unwillingness to have this, these conversations. They were protesting, which is why it was called the Protestant Reformation. They were protesting what the church was doing. Boom. A key phrase in the Protestant Reformation is, is the idea of justification by faith alone. And really, that's all I want to spend the rest of our time talking about today. This phrase, justification by faith alone. We actually find this script, this. Uh, this concept multiple times throughout Scripture. In Romans chapter 3, Paul famously writes that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In verse 23, and then in verse 28, he writes this, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Romans chapter 4 is all about Abraham from the Old Testament, that he was justified not because of what he did, but because of his faith alone. Then in chapter 5, Paul says, 
Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In another letter, Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes this, For the law was our guardian against Christ until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. The law was our guardian until Christ, so that's the Old Testament, was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now, this phrase, justification by faith alone, it's a little bit clumsy with churchy language. But essentially, the word justify is a legal term that means to be, uh, to be cleared of wrongdoings. That, that it means to be innocent, that you are clean, that you are, you are not guilty. That's what it means to be justified. It's a legal term saying, saying you, you are, you, you're clean, you're free. It might be helpful to think of the concept of justify in, in terms of washing your hands. So all of us for the past number of months, we've had to think a little bit differently about washing our hands. Some of you are very good at washing your hands. You follow all of the CDC guidelines, and you do it for 20 seconds, and you scrub and get all over, and you get all to do, and you count, do the ABCs twice in order to get your full 20 seconds, and then you're all done, and then you use your shoulder to get through the door, so you're ready for surgery anywhere, anytime. <laughs> Others of you, despite the fact that there are notices on every bathroom throughout the city, you still get up from whatever your business is, and then you get over, and you go, and then you move on. And uh, okay, how many of you? No, 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 no. Don't raise your, don't raise your dirty hands up in the air. But so all of us, we're going to fit somewhere on this, this, this deal in terms of of how well do you wash your hands? It's a very reasonable metaphor to think of washing your hands in comparison to morality. We use that language uh, sometimes. We say, you know, I'm I'm washing my hands of this situation. Which means I'm, I'm separating myself. I'm not involved in this situation. I'm free. I'm clear. We might say that someone has blood on their hands. Which is this metaphor of saying they're involved. They, they are accountable. They were part of it. They are responsible. They are guilty. And so it is reasonable for us to think in terms of this whole idea of washing your hands. So... Are your hands clean? Are you justified? Would you say that spiritually that your hands are clean today? There are four different ways to respond to that question. The question is, are your hands clean? And there are four different options in terms of how to respond. One, one option is to, say, um, is to say, yeah, I look at my hands and my hands are not dirty. That I, I don't need to be justified. I don't need to be clean because my hands are not dirty. I'm good. I am justified. I'm self-justified. I've declared that my hands are clean. We're actually pretty good at, at self-justification. We're actually pretty good at looking at some of our morality and our decisions, etc., and justifying our actions. So we say things like, I... I, I, don't, I don't steal from my workplace because they have been stealing from me for years, so it's really just payback. It's not stealing. It's just balancing things out. We say, I'm not lying. I'm simply withholding partial truth. 
This is, this is, it's actually in their best interest that I don't share this with them. And we all know why we do it. But we justify, we're so good at it. We say, I'm not flirting with that person. I'm just, where in the Bible does it say that a married person is not allowed to engage in relationship with somebody else? You show me where it says that in the Bible. Alan, just last week, preacher boy, you talked about how we're supposed to love one another. Well, I like to do that at work. And so, so, so you tell me how this all works. We are, we are very good at justifying. We are experts at it. So many different angles, lesser of two evils. We compare ourselves to other people. Great ways at justifying. Martin Luther was terrible at it. He, he could not justify his sins. In fact, one of the reasons God used him in such a significant way with the Reformation is that he was, he was devastated by his sin. He was absolutely devastated by it, that there are reports that he would fast for 10 plus days in response to his own sin to just try to cleanse himself. He would put himself out on the cold in Germany and have to endure that. He would, he would hurt himself in response to his own sin. There are stories of him kneeling at an altar for hours and just confessing his sin time over, you know, Sin after sin after sin after sin for an extended period of time. Before he would even leave the church, he'd get up from the altar. Before he even left the church, he would be reminded of something else or he would think about something else or think poorly about somebody else and he would go back. He would go back and kneel at the altar and confess more. Apparently, there's a priest at one point who said to him, Martin, go out and confess commit some kind of sin that makes you worthy of coming back to this altar, which is not the message I want you to hear today. Because I know some of you, you go to church, you kind of take what you want, you hear what you want, that's the line that you wrote down. No, that was the line for Luther, Martin Luther, who was devastated by his sin. We say that if someone is just, 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 washing their hands nonstop and they're freaking out about everything and they're using towels and they're just kind of over. We say that they're a germaphobe. Luther was a cinephobe. He knew that his hands were filthy, dirty, and there wasn't anything he could do to scrub it off. So one response is to say, my hands aren't dirty. I'm, I'm fine. Another response is to say, okay, my hands are dirty but I don't care. Yeah, I see that my hands are dirty, but I don't care. That's, that's basic narcissism. I, I realize I have germs on my hand. My hands are, you'll be okay. And, and we're, just a, we're just a big mess, and then we're shaking hands and touching everything and doing all this. And I don't care how my uncleanliness affects you or how I hurt you. I don't really care. My hands are dirty, and, and, and I don't care. That's another response to, to thinking about the uncleanness of our hands. The king of England, some of you are still kind of grossed out about that, you know, just a moment ago. Okay, it's okay, it's all right, it's all right. Uh, uh, I shower once a week, so we're good. Uh, the, uh, the king of England during the Reformation was Henry VIII. And uh, initially, his response to Martin Luther is that he condemned Martin Luther. 
is that he said Martin Luther is absolutely wrong and he was in support of the Pope. The Pope loved this and the Pope supported King Henry VIII and said, you are a defender of the faith. That was the, 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 the letter that the Pope sent to the king. Way to go, good job, way to go. The king married Catherine and they had a daughter named Elizabeth. But the problem was that the king wanted a son to continue the, 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 the royal line. He wanted a son, and so what he ended up doing was divorcing Catherine and marrying Anne Boleyn so that she could have a son for him and continue his line. The Pope found out about it and said, hey, hey, Henry, what are you doing? You can't do that. You can't just, just divorce somebody and marry somebody whenever you want and still be, you know, a defender of the faith and all this. Good. We just don't do that in the church. You can't do that, king. And the king said, Henry VIII, I am, I am. Henry VIII, I am. He said, I can do whatever I want. I'm the king. And so, uh, so he said, I can divorce who I want to divorce. I can marry who I want to marry. And he said, all right. And the Pope excommunicated him. Whew. Pope excommunicated Luther. And now the Pope excommunicated King Henry VIII. And King Henry VIII said, okay, I'm kicked out of that church. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start my own. And King Henry VIII started the Church of England. That's how the Church of England started, not because of some theological conviction, but because the king wanted to have a son and therefore wanted to divorce Catherine and marry Anne Boleyn. The king and Anne Boleyn did have a son named Edward, and Edward became king at the age of nine. His, his dad, King Henry VIII, died when Edward was nine, but tragically, he was only king until he was 15 years old. So he was only king from ages 9 to 15, which is why in verse 3 of the song, the, the Billy Joel song, that's why there was the phrase, Edward is a no-go, because he was only king for six years. And guess who was next in line? Queen Elizabeth. See her smile? See, now she's, now she's happy. This was Queen Elizabeth I, and she was a queen for, for a long period of time. And, and these were some of the most glorious years in England's history. This is the Elizabethan era. This is where we have Shakespeare and, and other uh, writers and, and artists, etc. This is a glorious time. She embraced Protestantism and embraced that to be a part of the, the church's faith system and, and all of that. But essentially, this story is about a king... Who, who, who said, yes, my hands are dirty. I know I'm not supposed to just divorce and marry whoever I want to marry. And there were other women involved with the whole story. And, and, and he's, he said, yes, my hands are dirty, and I don't care. It's, it's narcissism. I don't care how my actions have an impact or have an effect on other people. I want to do what I want to do. I, I'm not interested in being justified. I'm not interested in being clean. I know my hands are dirty, and I don't care. There's a third response to the question of, are your hands clean? And that is to say, I know my hands are dirty, and I'm going to wash them. I know my hands are dirty, and I'm going to take care of it myself. So how is one supposed to do that? 
How, just think about your own life, your, the own dirtiness of your own hands. How do you make clean the areas of guilt and shame and responsibility in your life? How do you make up for mistakes that you've made in the past? How, how is it possible to make up for pain that you've caused, for years that have been lost because of decisions that you have made? How can you make that up? How do you fix that? How do you take care of that? This is an ongoing struggle for humanity. No matter what age you are, there's a period you look back and say, I can't go back there and make that right. In other faith systems, they have ways of, of working through that kind of guilt and shame. In the Muslim faith, they have the five pillars of faith. That if you walk through these, these five pillars and do this for the rest of your life, then maybe, maybe at the end, you will have done enough work to counterbalance the ways that you have been broken and dirty and unjustified. Or in the Eastern religions, there's a way of, of using your works in reincarnation after reincarnation and, and dealing with karma and trying to build this up so that you gradually climb the spiritual ladder to, to work your way up to this better place. And what was happening in the church 500 years ago is that even the church was talking about the value of our works and what we do. And, you know, you could just pay your way into dealing with the sins of your past or the sins of your loved one's past. You can, you, can, you can pay for it. You can work your way through it. If you look at your hands and you say, I'm, I'm dirty, and I can, do, I can take care of this myself. I can fix this myself. I can clean this up myself. How do you do that? What steps do you take? What have you been doing to try to make that happen? How has that gone for you so far? What kind of assurances do you have? What kind of peace do you have because of the efforts you've made to clean yourself up? Which leads to the fourth and beautiful response to the question. The fourth response is justification by faith alone. In other words, I know my hands are dirty and I can't clean this myself. Jesus, would you make me clean? Would you wash me clean? In other words, it's not, I'm not made right. I'm not made clean because of what I do. I'm made clean because of what I believe. I'm made clean because of who I put my faith in. As we close here today, I just ask you to just, just look at your hands for a moment. Just just look at the back and the front of your hands and just think about what kind of, of how, how clean they are in terms of your spirituality, your morality. When you look at your hands, do you, do you see the dirt? Are you free from guilt and shame? Are, are you free from the ways that you have hurt yourself? hurt others, the ways that you have lied to yourself, lied to others? If you see that your hands are dirty, do you still care? Do you still care about that stuff or have you let that go years ago? If you look and see your hands are dirty, have you tried to clean it yourself? Have you made efforts to try to take care of this yourself? 
Or are you ready right now, right now, to say, my hands are dirty, I can't clean this on my own. Jesus, would you come and clean and make me clean? Would you come and justify me, make me right before God? If you are not a follower of Jesus, you can take care of this today. You, you can make the greatest decision, the most important decision you've ever made in your life right now. All you have to do is just say, I choose to follow Jesus. That's, that's all it is. It just says, I choose to put my faith in Jesus. That's what we mean by justification, by faith alone. If you choose to do that today, all I ask is that you are courageous enough to tell somebody about it. Tell someone that you know who is a follower of Jesus. Come up the front afterwards. We'd love to talk with you about that. That's, that's all it is. It's simply a matter of saying, from today on, I'm committed to a relationship with Jesus to figure out what it means for the rest of my life to become more like him. If, on the other hand, you are a follower of Jesus, and you look at your hands and they're still dirty, there is some thing in your life that you continue to struggle with, let me just remind you today, it's not about you. It's not about your own strength. It has always been and always will be about us on a regular basis, a daily basis, just saying, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. I need you. I need your strength. Would you come and make me clean? It means every day, every moment, every temptation, every struggle, every relapse, every time, we just once again say, I cannot do this on my own. I cannot do this on my own. Jesus, would you give me the strength? Would you purify me? Would you justify me? Because I can't clean my hands on my own. I'm just reminding you today, whatever you're struggling with, it's not about your own strength. It's about who you're putting your faith into every day. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, when, when you look at our hands, I believe that you see our pain. You see our hurt. You see the way we hurt ourselves and the way we hurt others. and You see the, the stuff that is done in darkness that no one else sees. You see all of that. You know all of that. You see that pain. And you love us so much you want us to be free from that. And you watch us try to do it on our own. You watch us work so hard and feel the weight of us trying to figure it out ourselves. And you just, every day, you just want us to say, give it to me. Give it to me. So, Father, I pray that you would help us remember right now going forward that the, that the fire that was lit by this Protestant Reformation in the 16th century was a reminder that it's not about our works, that we are only made clean, only justified by our faith in you. Would you remind us of that right now, this week? Would you give us purity and forgiveness, and cleanness because of our faith in you, we pray. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.